Prologue, Sections 1 through 3 of The Fallen Leaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Steve Miller, Charlotte, North Carolina. The Fallen Leaves by Wilkie Collins. The Prologue, Section 1. The resistless influences which are one day to reign supreme over our poor hearts and to shape the sad short course of our lives are sometimes of mysteriously remote origin and find their devious ways to us through the hearts and the lives of strangers. While the young man whose troubled career it is here proposed to follow was wearing his first jacket and bowling his first hoop a domestic misfortune falling on the household of strangers was destined nevertheless to have its ultimate influence over his happiness and to shape the whole aftercourse of his life. For this reason, some first words must precede the story and must present the brief narrative of what happened in the household of strangers. By what devious ways the event here related affected the chief personage of these pages when he grew to manhood? It will be the business of the story to trace over land and sea, among men and women, in bright days and dull days alike, until the end is reached, and the pen, God willing, is put back in the desk. Prologue, Section 2 Old Benjamin Ronald of the Stationer's Company took a young wife at the ripe old age of fifty and carried with him into the holy estate of matrimony some of the habits of his bachelor life. As a bachelor he had never willingly left his shop, situated in that exclusively commercial region of London which is called the city, from one year's end to another. As a married man he persisted in following the same monotonous course. With this one difference that he now had a woman to follow it with him. "'Travelling by railway,' he explained to his wife, "'will make your head ache. It makes my head ache. Travelling by sea will make you sick. It makes me sick. If you want change of air, every sort of air is to be found in the city. If you admire the beauties of nature, there is Finsbury Square.' with the beauties of nature carefully selected and arranged. When we are in London, you and I are all right. And when we are out of London, you and I are all wrong. As surely as the autumn holiday season set in, so surely old Ronald resisted his wife's petition for a change of scene in that form of words. A man habitually fortified behind his own inbred obstinacy and selfishness is for the most part an irresistible power within the limits of his domestic circle. As a rule, patient Mrs. Ronald yielded, and her husband stood revealed to his neighbors in the glorious character of a married man who had his own way. But in the autumn of 1856, the retribution which sooner or later descends on all despotisms, great and small, overtook the iron rule of old Ronald and defeated the domestic tyrant on the battlefield of his own fireside. The children born of the marriage, two in number, were both daughters. The elder had mortally offended her father by marrying imprudently in a pecuniary sense, 
he had declared that she should never enter his house again, and he had mercilessly kept his word. The younger daughter, now eighteen years of age, provided to be also a source of parental inquietude in another way. She was the passive cause of the revolt, which set her father's authority at defiance. For some little time past, she had been out of health. After many ineffectual trials of the mild influence of persuasion, her mother's patience at last gave way. Mrs. Ronald insisted, yes, actually insisted, on taking Miss Emma to the seaside. "'What's the matter with you?' old Ronald asked. Detecting something that perplexed him in his wife's look and manner, on the memorable occasion when she asserted a will of her own for the first time in her life. A man of finer observation would have discovered the signs of no ordinary anxiety and alarm, struggling to show themselves openly in the poor woman's face. Her husband only saw a change that puzzled him. "'Send for Emma,' he said, his natural cunning inspiring him with the idea of confronting the mother and daughter and of seeing what came of that. Emma appeared, plump and short, with large blue eyes and full pouting lips and splendid yellow hair, otherwise miserably pale, languid in her movements, careless in her dress, sullen in her manner. Out of health, as her mother said, and as her father saw. You can see for yourself, said Mrs. Ronald, that the girl is pining for fresh air, I have heard Ramsgate recommended. Old Ronald looked at his daughter. She represented the one tender place in his nature. It was not a large place, but it did exist. And the proof of it is that he began to yield with the worst possible grace. Well, we will see about it, he said. There is no time to be lost, Mrs. Ronald persisted. I mean to take her to Ramsgate tomorrow. Mr. Ronald looked at his wife as a dog looked at the maddened sheep that turned on him. "'You mean?' repeated the stationer. "'Upon my soul! What next? You mean? Where is the money to come from? Answer me that!' Mrs. Ronald declined to be drawn into a conjugal dispute in the presence of her daughter. She took Emma's arm and led her to the door. There she stopped and spoke. "'I have already told you that the girl is ill.' she said to her husband, and I now tell you again that she must have the sea air. For God's sake, don't let us quarrel. I have enough to try me without that. She closed the door on herself and her daughter, and left her lord and master standing face to face with the wreck of his own outraged authority. What further progress was made by the domestic revolt when the bedroom candles were lit, and the hour of retirement had arrived with the night? is naturally involved in the mystery. This alone is certain. On the next morning, the luggage was packed, and the cab was called to the door. Mrs. Ronald spoke her parting words to her husband in private. I hope I have not expressed myself too strongly about taking Emma to the seaside, she said in gentle, pleading tones. I am anxious about our girl's health. If I've offended you without meaning it, God knows... Say you forgive me before I go. I've tried honestly, dear, to be a good wife to you. And you have always trusted me, haven't you? And trust me still? 
She took his lean, cold hand and pressed it fervently. Her eyes rested on him with a strange mixture of timidity and anxiety. Still in the prime of her life, she preserved the personal attractions, the fair, calm, refined face, the natural grace of look and movement, which had made her marriage to a man old enough to be her father a cause of angry astonishment among all her friends. In the agitation that now possessed her, her color rose, her eyes brightened. She looked, for the moment, almost young enough to be Emma's sister. Her husband opened his hard old eyes in surly bewilderment. Why need you make this fuss? he asked. I don't understand you. Mrs. Ronald shrank at those words, as if he had struck her. She kissed him in silence and joined her daughter in the cab. For the rest of the day, the persons in the stationer's employment had a hard time of it with their master in the shop. Something had upset old Ronald. He ordered the shutters to be put up earlier that evening than usual. Instead of going to his club at the tavern round the corner, he took a long walk in the lonely and lifeless streets of the city by night. There was no disguising it from himself. His wife's behavior at parting had made him uneasy. He naturally swore at her for taking that liberty, while he lay awake alone in his bed. Damn the woman! What does she mean? The cry of the soul utters itself in various forms of expression. That was the cry of old Ronald's soul, literally translated. Prologue, Section 3 the next morning brought him a letter from Ramsgate. I write immediately to tell you of our safe arrival. We have found comfortable lodgings, as the address at the head of this letter will inform you, in Albion Place. I thank you, and Emma desires to thank you also, for your kindness in providing us with the ample means for taking our little trip. It is beautiful weather today, the sea is calm, and the pleasure boats are out. We do not, of course, expect to see you here, but if you do, by any chance, overcome your objection to moving out of London, I have a little request to make. Please let me hear of your visit beforehand, so that I may not omit all the needful preparations. I know you dislike being troubled with letters except on business, so I will not write too frequently. Be so good as to take no news for good news in the intervals. When you have a few minutes to spare, you will write, I hope, and tell me how you and the shop are going on. Emma sends you her love, in which I beg to join. So the letter was expressed, and so it ended. They needn't be afraid of my troubling them. Calm seas and pleasure boats, stuff and nonsense. Such was the first impression which his wife's report of herself produced on old Ronald's mind. After a while, he looked at the letter again and frowned, and reflected. Please let me hear of your visit beforehand. He repeated it to himself, as if the request had been, in some incomprehensible way, offensive to him. He opened the drawer of his desk and threw the letter into it. When business was over for the day, he went to his club at the tavern and made himself unusually disagreeable to everybody. A week passed. In the interval, he wrote briefly to his wife. I'm all right. 
and the shop goes on as usual. He also forwarded one or two letters which came for Mrs. Ronald. No more news reached him from Ramsgate. I suppose they're enjoying themselves, he reflected. The house looks queer without them. I'll go to the club. He stayed later than usual, and drank more than usual that night. It was nearly one in the morning when he let himself in with his latch-key and went upstairs to bed. Approaching the toilet table, he found a letter lying on it, addressed to Mr. Ronald, private. It was not in his wife's handwriting, not in any handwriting known to him. The character sloped the wrong way, and the envelope bore no postmark. He eyed it over and over suspiciously. At last he opened it and read these lines. You are advised by a true friend to lose no time in looking after your wife. There are strange doings at the seaside. If you don't believe me, ask Mrs. Turner, number one, Slane's Row, Ramsgate. No address, no date, no signature. An anonymous letter, the first he had ever received in the long course of his life. His hard brain was in no way affected by the liquor that he had drunk. He sat down on his bed, mechanically folding and refolding the letter. The reference to Mrs. Turner produced no impression on him of any sort. No person of that name, common as it was, happened to be numbered on the list of his friends or his customers. But for one circumstance he would have thrown the letter aside in contempt. His memory reverted to his wife's incomprehensible behavior at parting. Addressing him through that remembrance, the anonymous warning assumed a certain importance to his mind. He went down to his desk in the back office and took his wife's letter out of the drawer and read it through slowly. Huh, he said, pausing as he came across the sentence which requested him to write beforehand in the unlikely event of his deciding to go to Ramsgate. He thought again of the strangely persistent way in which his wife dwelt on his trusting her. He recalled her nervous, anxious looks, her deepening color, her agitation at one moment, and then her sudden silence and sudden retreat to the cab. Fed by these irritating influences, the inbred suspicion in his nature began to take fire slowly. She might be innocent enough in asking him to give her notice before he joined her at the seaside. She might naturally be anxious to omit no needful preparation for his comfort. Still, he didn't like it. No, he didn't like it. An appearance as of a slow collapse passed little by little over his rugged, wrinkled face. He looked many years older than his age. As he sat at the desk, with the flaring candlelight close in front of him, thinking. The anonymous letter lay before him side by side with his wife's letter. On a sudden, he lifted his gray head and clenched his fist and struck the venomous written warning as if it had been a living thing that could feel. Whoever you are, he said, I'll take your advice. He never even made the attempt to go to bed that night. His pipe helped him through the comfortless and dreary hours. Once or twice he thought of his daughter. Why had her mother been so anxious about her? Why had her mother taken her to Ramsgate? 
perhaps as a blind. Ah, yes, perhaps as a blind. More for the sake of something to do than for any other reason, he packed a handbag with a few necessaries. As soon as the servant was stirring, he ordered her to make him a cup of strong coffee. After that, it was time to show himself as usual on the opening of the shop. To his astonishment, he found his clerk taking down the shutters in place of the porter. "'What does this mean?' he asked. "'Where is Farnaby?' The clerk looked at his master and paused aghast with the shutter in his hands. "'Good Lord, what has come to you?' he cried. "'Are you ill?' Old Ronald angrily repeated his question. "'Where is Farnaby?' "'I don't know,' was the answer. "'You don't know? Have you been up to his bedroom?' "'Yes.' "'Well?' "'Well, he isn't in his bedroom, and what's more, his bed hasn't been slept in last night.' "'Farnaby's off, sir. Nobody knows where.' Old Ronald dropped heavily into the nearest chair. The second mystery, following on the mystery of the anonymous letter, staggered him. But his business instincts were still in good working order. He held out his keys to the clerk. "'Get the petty cash-book,' he said, "'and see if the money is all right.' The clerk received the keys under protest. "'That's not the right reading of the riddle,' he remarked. "'Do as I tell you.' The clerk opened the money-drawer under the counter, counted the pounds, shillings, and pence paid by chance customers up to the closing of the shop on the previous evening compared the result with the petty cash-book, and answered, "'Right to a halfpenny.' Satisfied so far, old Ronald condescended to approach the speculative side of the subject with the assistance of his subordinate. "'If what you said now means anything,' he resumed, "'it means that you suspect the reason why Farnaby has left my service. Let's hear it. You know that I never liked John Farnaby.' the clerk began. An active young fellow and a clever young fellow, I grant you. But a bad servant for all that. False, Mr. Ronald. False to the marrow of his bones. Mr. Ronald's patience began to give way. Come to the facts, he growled. Why has Farnaby gone off without a word to anybody? Do you know that? I know more than you do, the clerk answered coolly. Don't fly into a passion. I have got some facts for you, if you will only give me time. Turn them over in your own mind, and see what they come to. Three days ago I was short of postage stamps, and I went to the office. Farnaby was there, waiting at the desk where they pay the post office orders. There must have been ten or a dozen people with letters, orders, and what not, between him and me. I got behind him quietly, and looked over his shoulder. I saw the clerk give him the money for his post-office order, five pounds in gold, which I reckoned as they lay on the counter, and a banknote besides, which he crumpled up in his hand. I can't tell you how much it was for, only I know it was a banknote. Just ask yourself how a porter on twenty shillings a week, with a mother who takes in washing and a father who takes in drink, comes to have a correspondent who sends him an order for five sovereigns and a banknote, value unknown. 
say he's turned a betting man in secret. Very good. There's the post office order, in that case to show that he's got a run of luck. If he's got a run of luck, tell me this. Why does he leave this place like a thief in the night? He's not a slave. He's not even an apprentice. When he thinks he can better himself, he has no earthly need to keep it a secret that he means to leave your service. He may have met with an accident, to be sure, but that's not my belief. I say he's up to some mischief, and now comes the question, what are we to do? Mr. Ronald, listening with his head down and without interposing a word on his own part, made an extraordinary answer. Leave it, he said. Leave it till tomorrow. Why? the clerk answered without ceremony. Mr. Ronald made another extraordinary answer. Because I am obliged to go out of town for the day. Look after the business. The ironmonger's man over the way will help you to put up the shutters at night. If anybody inquires for me, say I shall be back tomorrow. With those parting directions, heedless of the effect that he had produced on the clerk, he looked at his watch and left the shop. End of Prologue Sections 1 through 3 of The Fallen Leaves Recorded by Steve Miller, Charlotte, North Carolina